0: Church, I don't know if you guys have ever skipped to the end of Exodus to start seeing if we're getting any closer to finishing the book than when we started, which hopefully you would agree we are closer than when we started. But we are in chapter 29 today, which means next week we are 75% of the way through, okay? Um, and it's gonna roughly the end of Exodus is gonna coincide perfectly with us with our our covenant renewal Sunday, that's gonna come up and it's not that far off in mid October, but church it is it is so cool and it's it's special to me as a pastor that, um, you know, because we've Abigail and I have almost gotten to be here for about a year now, and we we kind of laid out before you this vision of man what do we see in the church. What do we see that God has called us to be? Like, big picture level, what does it mean to be a church? And we agreed last, last Covenant Renewal Sunday just on, yeah, we agree to this. I mean, we, we want to be a church after the, the mission of being a community on mission, committed to Christ and submitted to discipleship making. We wanted to be a people loving as Christ, learning from Christ, living in Christ. We, we wanted to be a people that valued Christ as our life, transformational unity in the spirit, the power of prayer, the image of God, uh, reconciliation to God and others, and sharing and experiencing God. We said, yes, we want to do that. And then we've been walking through Exodus each week guys. we have been seeing a different piece as to what does it mean to be the people of God. Okay, this it's been cool. It, I don't know if you've appreciated it, but I have appreciated going on this journey with you because the Exodus is not a book that I tend to really want to read much through. You guys have been digging through the blueprints with me the past couple weeks. We, we see that. It's, it's not extremely easy, but we are, we are almost there. It has been fun to go through this. It's been fun to wrestle with this before you guys on Sunday mornings. And now in chapter 29, we're going to kind of wrap up the priesthood today. Okay, so last week, chapter 27, verse 20, all the way through chapter 28, we talked about how God made his priests to represent his image before his creation and to intercede on their behalf, right? And we said that you cannot separate those two. You can't represent God to somebody else Without going before them on their behalf saying, look, this is the God I want to introduce you to. And going before God and saying, God, I know they're broken, but may your grace and your mercy be on them just as it is on me. We said, you just, you just can't do one without the other. And we said that the life that does both of this together is a disciple. Now, in case you thought I was blowing smoke at you last week, I'd like to, to think that most of you guys would say, oh, well, if he's, if he's saying that I agree with him. God doesn't want there to be any room for his people, whether is discipleship really the life I would have for you to do this or not, because this is apparently all he focuses on in chapter 29, okay? So we're going to see this morning, we're going to kind of flesh this out a little bit further. Why? I mean, we started last year talking about why is discipleship the core of the church, right? And I know, I know a lot of us say, of course, of course it is, Jordan, and in my experience, it usually is an important part. But I love, and I'll tell you, we looked at a lot of church websites when we were kind of transitioning away from Bethlehem and coming here. I love watching what other churches talk about discipleship. And especially what goes on their website. Just because that tends to be the first thing people see when they look at the churches. Well, let me check out their website at least to find out where they're located, what their service times are. And a lot of churches, when they talk about discipleship, it's usually, like, one of the things they have going on, right? Like, we have our small groups over here. We have our community groups. Like, we have our our places where we do discipleship here. But then over here, we have missions. And then over here, we have childrens, And then over here, we have all this other stuff. Uh, Some churches have made it such a priority, they've hired associate pastors of discipleship, which is one of my favorite titles because it's like, oh, so you... You farmed out the responsibility of discipleship from the main pastor to somebody else. I, I know that's not what most churches do, but it just, it just makes me chuckle to see the different ways we present discipleship and what it is to grow in following Christ and leading others to do likewise as just one of the things we do as a church. And I, I realized as I was reading through Exodus a couple weeks ago when I hit chapter 29, just starting to prepare, because it, it takes weeks to get to the point where it's ready for me to turn around and teach this to somebody else. But, man, it's not, it's a big deal to God. and It's not just a big deal. It, it is fundamentally kind of what he's built into the core of what he desires of his people. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 29 today, and we're just going to see simply this, guys, that God calls his priests to a life of discipleship as fundamentally who we are to be what we are to do if we want to get to the pragmatic level what do we do we are committed to a life of discipleship and why because discipleship reminds us of god's narrative for our lives right if we get caught up in doing other stuff that are good things but if we're neglecting discipleship over time we just we forget who we are god says this is core And because this is core, this is going to keep reminding you of who you are to me, who I am to you. So beginning in chapter 29, we see this in verse 1. This is God talking to Moses about the priests. He says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour, and you shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons." So chapter 29 begins where 28 left off. We saw all these directions about putting the clothes on the priests, what they were to wear. Chapter 29 begins with God telling Moses, go put them on the priests. Go put them on the priests, make some bread and stuff on the side, and bring everybody to my tent. So then what happens at the tent? This is verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with the fire outside of the camp, for this is a sin offering." Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma and a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their head their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar then you shall take of the blood that is on the altar of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his sons and on his garments and on his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his son's and his son's garments with him. You shall also take fat, the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord." You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. So God tells Moses, once you've dressed the priests, uh, you're, I mean, it, it's very detailed. Okay, I, I I'm not an expert in what goes on inside of an animal, but I feel a little bit more of an expert after reading through this that I know different bits and pieces. The bits and the pieces are not the big deal. What God is doing is he's teaching His Moses, this is how you're going to set apart the priests. right? You put all the fancy robes on them, all the fancy garments that stand them out from the rest of the world, that teach them to teach the world, who I am and what I look like. Now Moses goes through this big, long process that kind of externally shows what's going on, right? That they are being set apart. They're literally—I mean, if you guys remember the old church hymn, they're literally being washed by the blood of, of the lamb, uh, also of the bowl here. Um, but man, that is—that is a hymn that I—I have definitely grown up with, and I realize that is—that is this right here, this picture of being set apart, being consecrated, being made holy. All of this is taking place here. And I love what's going to happen next because it's not just a big show on the outside. Now we see, look down at verse 26 with me. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be your portion. So Moses gets in on the fun. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved. "...and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him... They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. And the son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister to the holy place, shall wear them seven days. Now you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat these things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination of the bread uh, remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Remember the holy picnic we talked about four or five weeks ago from chapter 24. This is kind of like the holy picnic part two. God says... All this stuff that I'm having you do is not just a big show on the outside of what's going on. God says it's also a deeply internal work. So something, something about what it means to be a disciple is a deeply internal work because they're literally taking what was the external sign and they're eating it. And I'll be honest, sometimes we don't think about eating as maybe a holy activity. Um, sometimes we think of it as a sleepy activity. Activity for the worship team, we went to Red Palace in Roanoke yesterday. We intentionally kind of skipped breakfast to have our fill of lunch. And then we were all texting each other about the naps that took place afterwards. Sometimes eating doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But God says here, look, this, this eating, what you're doing on the altar, this external piece, you're going to make it internal. It's going to literally become part of you because you're eating it. Right, so it's moving from the external to internal, and now God gets to the point where he kind of wraps this up for Moses in verse 35. He says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and on every day you shall offer a, burnt, a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly. On one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of a wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And here's, here's the promise of what God is saying. Here's what happens when we do all of this. 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Father, we are grateful this morning for yet another look into who you have made us to be. Father, just as we, we read through the tabernacle directions and we saw your your design and your intentionality there, Lord, and we saw this in the beginning of what the priests wore last week. Father, as we, we move into all these, these sacrifices and things that Moses had to do to get the priests ready, Father, this is, it is not a stretch for us to say, well, then what has Jesus done to get us ready to be your people, to be the church today? And Father, we've, we've, we've already kind of seen from last week that discipleship is, is kind of at the core of whatever this answer is. But Father, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to understand what were you after with Israel that you've then left for Christ and the church to follow today. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, one thing we're going to do as we walk through this chapter, and and you may have heard me do it, and I've not explicitly said this is what I'm doing. But one of the powerful things when you're trying to figure out what is going on in passages like this in the Old Testament is pay attention to phrases that get repeated over and over and over again. So what we're going to do as we talk about discipleship this morning, I want to call your attention to a couple phrases that get repeated Over and over and over again. Because God is very gracious to us. Just like a good father. If you tell your child something and they don't hear it. You tell them again. And then again. And then again. And that you just keep repeating it before them until they understand it. And the first phrase that really shows us why what God is calling his priests to do ultimately is a life of discipleship. Is in the phrase Aaron and his sons. If you... If you went back and read all of the 40-some verses we read last Sunday and the 40-some verses this week, which we're not, we're not going to do right now. That's a lot of reading. Um, you're going to notice the phrase Aaron and his sons comes up 18 different times. Okay? There's something fundamental going on why God keeps saying Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons. And I, I love, if you, if you look at the words there, Okay, Aaron, Aaron's a good name. Some of you guys may have children named Aaron or friends who have children named Aaron. Aaron literally means light bringer. Right? You, you th- the name Aaron was given to somebody that was going to give light to others. So Aaron means light bringer. Sons is from the Hebrew noun, Bain, which literally it, it does mean son, right? Like your next descendant. But it also is kind of a broader picture. It, it means descendants Plural. So this is like Aaron, his son, his grandson, his great grandson. This phrase literally means that God is establishing the priesthood through a light bringer and all the ones that are come after the light bringer. Keep that in your head. That's a powerful picture. The light bringer and all of the ones who come after him. So what do the light bringer and his descendants do together? God says in chapter 29, verse 4, that they're going to be purified together, washed together. We could say they're going to be made righteous together. They're sanctified. They're going to be clothed together. We get that in verse 9, that literally being clothed, like we said last week, it's to take on the life, take on the image to be fit for the life of something. God says, Aaron and his sons are going to be fit for this work together. It also says a couple different places in here, and especially in verse 9, that Aaron and his sons were to be ordained together. Typically, ordination, um, it's not a word that I've really heard outside of the church. I don't know if you guys have come across it. Sometimes it's interesting to me to try to talk about churchy words with non-church things when we don't ever use them outside of the church. But to ordain something literally means to fill with the hand of God. So if you've ever ordained a pastor, or ordained somebody from ministry, what you're really doing is you're saying, we see God's hand in them, on their life, leading them to do something. The, the Hebrew here gives us that picture. Aaron and his sons were to be filled with the hand of God together. And it really comes to life, like I said, when they eat. They are making this consecration. They are bringing the sacrifice into themselves. And we also see they're supposed to sacrifice together. And and I love how the whole first two-thirds of the chapter shows how these sacrifices were to make the priests right with God. And at the very end, God throws this in. He says, now, if you offer these sacrifices for the priests, and the priests are now going to offer this for the people, so it's not just the priests that need to be right with me, the people of Israel, the rest the rest of my people also need to be right with me. And so guys, what we are getting from chapter 29 is a picture of God setting apart someone whose name literally means light bringer. And he's saying this light bringer and his descendants, those who are with him, the, the family, the children of the light bringer, they're going to be made righteous together. They're going to be cleansed together. They're going to be fit for life and ministry together. They are going to make sacrifices together so that others may come to know who God is. And you think, where else have I heard that before? This is not a connection that I make. Jesus literally says this is who He is. In John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus, as he's talking with his disciples, he declares, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that may be a passage that you guys are familiar with in in just the way that I've grown up. When I've heard people talk about this, they usually talk about how Jesus was like a light shining in the darkness, which is there and is correct. Like Jesus literally being the light means that we start to see what brokenness looks like. It's, it's a good teaching, but I realized in light of Exodus 29, it's, it's just it's a little incomplete. Because when Jesus is talking about being the light of the world, He's not just saying that He is going to show up and show everybody like what brokenness looks like and what God looks like. Jesus is saying, I am the light bringer. God said... That there would be a high priest over all the people, one whose job was to make things right with God again. And that one would literally have the name Light Bringer. Jesus says, That is me. I have come to bring light to the world. And then I love, guys, I love, and Jesus says, As long as I am in the world. Because he implies, when I'm not in the world, someone else is going to take on this role. Someone else is going to be the light bringers. And Jesus says in Matthew five fourteen another verse we're probably familiar with. He says, you, speaking to his disciples, speaking to those who are following him, you are the light of the world. Jesus says, I, I am the light bringer. He says, and those who are following me, those who, are, who bear my name, those who are, are my disciples, he says, man, those those are my sons. This is the Aaron and his sons language from chapter 29 here. And guys, just in case we missed it, I love Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, just, just in case there's any doubt, he identifies Christ's followers as the royal priesthood. He says, when, when God is talking to Aaron, Aaron, this is what it is to be the light bringer. But Aaron, this is not a job that you're going to do totally independent. You are going to bring your family, bring your sons into doing this work with you. Jesus says, yeah, that's." they're talking about me. I am the light bringer. And those who follow me are my, my descendants. They are my sons, my daughters, my children that will also bring light to the world. Church, we are called together with Christ as Aaron's sons were called with him. We're called to be cleansed together, made right with God through Christ. We're called to be clothed together. It's it's one of our values here. Christ is our life. We are fit for life. Just as Aaron's sons were fit with him through Christ. We're called to be ordained together. We are literally filled with the Holy Spirit, church, that, that this this stuff is not like this ethereal thing to attain to. We have it with the Holy Spirit. It's powerful. That when Jesus was talking about this to his disciples, right, he was bringing something new in that he was the one, not the law that was bringing it forwards. But Jesus is saying, look, this is what God has been after since the very beginning. Church, if there's one thing I beg you to take away from our study in Exodus, it's that what God has done to make you and I the church through Jesus Christ, he's been doing all throughout Scripture. That way God fundamentally, he's been revealing to his people since day one. Even as they don't even know what it means to be a priest, God says, my son is going to come later. He's going to show you, but he's going to point you right back here. He's going to say, I have been after the same thing since day one. I have been after people who would bring my light to the world, who would show them who I am, who would stand in the place and say, I know you don't know who God is. Let me show you who he is. Who would go before God and say, God, I know that they are broken apart from you, but just as you've forgiven me, also forgive them. Also have your grace be upon them. We, he has called his priests to a life of discipleship. And why God cares is because the life of a disciple reminds us, guys, of who we are. And it reminds us of who God is to us. The second part of our main point, discipleship reminds us of God's narrative for our lives. I'm going to walk you through. There's a couple really, well, there's probably more than a couple. But there are a couple really odd things about this chapter that should make us ask, what? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's good for us when we're reading through the Old Testament sometimes to be, what, what, what are they talking about? couple of these what questions. Why all these sacrifices? Okay. Just in the first 30 verses of this chapter, Moses is, is given six different offerings or sacrifices that he has to make for the priests to be made right with God. Okay, and he says in verses 35 through 37, all of these are required for Moses to do every single day for a week, just so that the priest could be filled with the hand of God. Why? Why all of these sacrifices? Why all this detail about where the blood is getting thrown and what parts of the insides of the the bowl are going where? What? Why all these sacrifices? that That's one question we should ask this morning. Another question. Why the eternal language? And I, I mean, if this is not a question you had because you didn't see it, I didn't see it the first time I read through it either, okay? But I realized there's a lot of eternity language going on in this in this chapter. Verse 9, God God gives the priests these responsibilities by a statute forever. Verse 28, the priests were owed all of this stuff, this this peace offering as a perpetual due. Verse 29 and 30, God was to or Aaron, excuse me, was to give the priestly position to give the duty, all the responsibilities. He was to give it to his sons. Verse 38, verse 42, the priests were to offer the burnt offering To atone for Israel's sins day by day, regularly. And then again, throughout your generations. Okay, there's a lot of eternal, long-term language going on here. Why is that there? Another question we should ask. Why why is the covenant coming back up? if you, part of this, guys, I, I throw these things out there just to help you when you're reading in the Old Testament. Whenever you start to hear God talking about, I'm their God, they're my people, this is the covenant coming back up. So it's good for us to say, why, why in the list of the sacrifices of the priests are, do, do we see this, this bit about the covenant showing up again? That in verse 42, God says, if you do all of this, I'll come meet with you. I'll come speak to you. Verse 43, I'll make you right with me. Verse 44, I'm going to affirm and uphold the tabernacle and the priesthood. Verse 45, I'm going to dwell with you. Why is the covenant showing up here? And the last question, which kind of leads us to answer the rest of them, why, when God is describing himself, verse 46, I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It may seem like Jordan's being nitpicky, but why, out of all the things that God could use to describe himself to his people, why does he say, I'm the God that got you out of Egypt? Right? Why does he not say, I'm the God who provided for you in the wilderness? Why does he not say, here, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's, he's done that. Why does he, in particular, remind them about Egypt? I've wrestled with where to... Where this goes in our study of Exodus, church, and I think, think now is the goodest time as, as ever. Who is Egypt to Israel? That's kind of a, a fundamental question that kind of clears all this up. Who's Egypt to Israel? In Genesis 46, God tells Jacob to leave the promised land and to go to Egypt. He tells Jacob, I am God. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. This is verse 3 and verse 4. All right, God, so God knows, if you guys remember uh, kind of the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, and he gets sent down to Egypt, and then there's this big famine. God tells Jacob, I've been telling you for years, Jacob, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. But now, Jacob, there is a famine. There's a famine that is coming. And in order for me to fulfill my covenant promise to you, Jacob, in order for me to keep making you to a great name and a great nation, I'm going to send you into the land of Egypt for a season. He says, but at some point there will come a day where I will get you back out of Egypt. Now, Israel's been in Egypt for 430 years, so it's safe to say they've probably forgotten this last bit of the promise that even though they were in slavery, it was, they were familiar with what their territory was. God wanted to put Israel in Egypt for a season, but he did not want Israel to stay in Egypt. What was wrong with Egypt other than the fact that they were enslaved in Egypt? It reveals, guys, if you've remembered just some of the different, different sermons that we've talked about, what have we learned about Egypt? Egypt? Okay? And I, I can't remember exactly which sermon we talked about it when. But I know at one point we talked about how Egypt, Egypt valued power. That fundamental to the, the, the kingdom of Egypt was the narrative of power. Because when Israel started to grow larger, we're told in Exodus chapter 1 verses 6 through 22, when they felt threatened, they killed Israel. They, they enslaved Israel and they killed off Israel. The babies. We also saw about Egypt, they valued production. They valued Israel based on what they were able to produce for them. And then they were right to kind of beat them and whip them and kill them when they they didn't match up, right? We've seen Egypt values power. Egypt values production. Lastly, Egypt values Self, All the way back at the beginning, chapter 5, verse 2, when God tells Pharaoh, let my people go, Pharaoh turns around and tells Moses, you go tell that God of yours, who is he to tell me what to do? That's a big mistake. But Egypt, Egypt values power, values production, values self. Can you imagine why God would not want His people hanging around Egypt for the rest of their lives? He says, because if you spend enough time in this world right here, you are going to forget who I am. You're going to forget who I have made you to be. And as long, God says in verse 46, I had to bring you out of Egypt, because as long as you were there, you were not going to reflect me to the rest of the world. And when we, when we understand why God had to get him out of Egypt, because he had a design for their lives that was going to be different, that was going to remind them of who they were, remind them of who he was to them, now we start to see why does God have all these other to us seemingly random, very detailed descriptions in chapter 29. God has all these sacrifices in place because he says, you were in Egypt for 430 years. You were living in the narrative of power. You were living in the narrative of production. You were living in the the narrative of self. It's going to take me a while to get that out of you. We're we're not just going to have one sacrifice and be done. No, priest, you're going to have to work. Because for 430 years, you've been told this is who you are and this is what you're supposed to do. And I am not going to have it in my people. God says we are going to work to get this out. God uses this eternity language because he says, look, this, I allowed this for a season because that was how I decided I was going to provide for you through the famine. But God says that is not what I planned for you forever. This, this picture of discipleship, this is what I have for you forever. Priests, He he gives them all these routines, all these activities to engage in to say, remember, I allowed this for a season, but that is not my ultimate goal for you. He says, this is this life of discipleship, this rhythm of reminding yourself of who I am and who you are to me. This, this is the work that I have for you to do. And I love that he reminds him, he says, I give you this eternity language because I'm just telling you, this is what I've been after since the beginning. I'd love maybe at some point, and it not, not coming next, but if you go through Genesis, I mean, the, the, the same story is there. It, in Genesis, you see it in the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Here we're seeing it in the nation of Israel. But a people who know who God is, who will bear his image and who join him in the work of bringing people to be right with him as they themselves are being made right with him this is what god has been after since day one church so if you and i if new river fellowship is going to make disciples in the new river valley church i hear me we have to know who we are and we have to know who God has made us. This is a life of discipleship because it is discipleship. It is this relationship that we have with God that reminds us of what we need in order to go be His image in our world. And so as we close this morning, we talk about application. I, I, there's, just, there's just one thing I want us to all be on the same page about that I, I see from here, okay? And that that is when we talk about discipleship. God did not define the community of discipleship based on what you do for the community. But he defines it based on what the community does together, okay? One more time. God did not define the community of discipleship based on what you do for the community, but on what the community does together. Right. Just a very personal example from my life. When when your focus is on what the community, what you can do for the community, sometimes guys, you get in seasons of life where you're not able to do what you think you should be able to do, or what you feel like you're able to do. And when you when you're in that season, you feel guilty. And I'll be honest, guilt does not drive anybody to do anything long-term. Okay, just a quick picture of this, okay? Sometimes when I'm talking with other pastors who are full-time, pastors who, uh, you know, are, are, are leading larger churches, they talk about all the things that they're doing. Very well, good men, and I, I learn a lot from them. There's always a bit of me that goes, yeah, but, but you don't have two kids under the age of three that require a lot of time and a lot of attention. You don't have a second job. Like, you, how am I ever supposed to be able to do what you guys are doing? And in that moment, it's hard not to feel guilty, right? Like, I'm not measuring up to what the other pastors are doing. And that guilt does not drive me to do more as a pastor. It just drives me to go... I'm never going to get there. You know, like if, if I have to wait for my kids to grow up or, or you know, the fi- finances to be different so that I can finally do. Who knows if, like, when all of that is going to happen? It, the guilt does not drive us to do things. Some of you guys are in seasons of life where you are taking care of family members who are very ill. Some, some of you guys are going through seasons where you're having to spend more time than you thought possible on your own personal health. Sometimes you guys are maybe in a season where your budget is a lot tighter than it normally is. Sometimes you're, you're in a season where your kids are really demanding. They're having a hard time in school. They may have special needs. You may be in seasons, church, where you're looking at what, Man, sometimes in church it just sounds like we talk about what we should be doing, and I don't, I don't know where that comes into play. Church, that is, please hear me, that is not, not the basis of discipleship. That's not what God has for His people. Community is also, sometimes in our world, it gets portrayed as a sign of weakness. Sometimes we don't engage because we're worried about what people are going to find out about ourselves. I'll be honest, with, with our house, we've been doing a, a lot of work on the inside. Okay. And in addition to the fact that, yes, we do have two small children, and there's toys everywhere. I think Abigail and I, we were talking about this the other day. We we feel like we probably spend more time cleaning up than doing anything else at the house. Just to how much stuff is there, how much things we're going through. If we ever get to the point where we say, well, then we just don't need to have people over because we're worried about how messy either from the kids or from construction the house is going to look. Church, it, again, the guilt over do, not being able to do what we feel like we should do because we see others doing it, that, that does not that does not drive us into the community. I, I do not think for a second it is any accident that when God is giving these directions to the priesthood, and to Moses at its core. Now, if we were to go through the book of Leviticus, and I will just go ahead and spare you, we're not going through Leviticus next. But the whole book of Leviticus in itself is a manual for what the priests are supposed to do. Please don't don't hear me going too far and say God doesn't care about what you're doing because there's an entire book teaching the priests, here's how you offer sacrifices, okay? It's, It's not that God does not Care, But I love that the foundation, the context of when God is talking about his priesthood, is he says, I'm not founding the priesthood on what you are able to do for one another. I am founding it on what you guys are called to do together. Aaron and his sons, the light bringer and his descendants, Christ and the church. And as the priests grew together, man, you know they started to get to know God. You know that they saw him in, in ways that blew their minds, that they went and told stories to other people about what it looks like. I have been deeply encouraged in our community group because I, I love, first off, I don't, I don't teach. Okay? If you're not in our group, I, I do not teach on Tuesdays. My, when, when we have our group, I want to listen because I get to hear from Bert and Carol, and Siobhan, and Daryl, and Abigail, and John, and Hannah, and Dwayne, and Kathy, and all, all you guys. I get to hear, and I get to be in this work with you guys. And I know from talking with those who have been at the Bowman's house, it's, it's the same. that You get to see this life in action. And rather than feeling guilty over what you can and can't do, you're getting encouraged by what God has called us to do, what who God has made us to be together. And my prayer, church, is we enter into new seasons of life and ministry together, because I mean if if you look around the room in this place, you see, I mean, God is doing a work. God is doing a powerful work in New River Fellowship. I don't I don't know if you feel sometimes it feels like it's just it's bubbling right under the surface about to break forth. It's, it's a very special feeling. But I hope you've heard as we've been in all this foundation building season, guys, it is, our main drive is not just getting caught up in doing things we feel like a church should do or in comparison to what other churches do. Because when you get caught up in that game, you start to say, well, I can't do what other people do because I don't have the power. So you start to go after the power. What's going to enable me to do what the other people are doing? You say, I'm not able to do what the other people are doing, so I feel guilty. Production. Because I'm not doing what somebody else is doing. You say, I just don't feel... The community part just kind of scares me. Self. That I'm not worthy or I'm not right to be that intimately known by other people. God says, my people will have nothing to do with these narratives. I do not want that in them. So I, I, I want to encourage you guys today. When we talk about discipleship, these things that, you know, we've started the community groups. Look, this... This is not just like a good thing for us to do, church. This is what God has called us to do together. It is who God has made us to be. So as we are engaging in this work, we are doing exactly what God laid out for his people to do, church. So a couple different ways as we close how you can join in this discipleship community. One of them is membership, right? Saying, okay, it's an intimidating work, but I want to do that here at this place with these people. Some of it, it could be a community group, right? First and third Tuesdays at our house, first and third Wednesdays at the Bowman's. Maybe you're saying, "I I really want to grow in this alongside other people who are wanting to grow in this. Come join us. And if you can't do either of those groups on either of those nights, start praying about maybe we'll be able to start another group on another night later. Church, we, we will. I love at the very end, God brings this covenant back up. He says, Look, if you engage in this life with me, I will meet with you. I will speak to you. I will sanctify you. I will set you apart. I will dwell with you. You will know who I am. That is the promise that awaits us, church. And I want, I want that promise to be made real in your lives. I want that promise for me. We're going to celebrate the reminder of that promise in just a moment with taking communion, just the reminder of what has been done on our behalf. So in just a second, we're going to have a couple people come forwards and help, help me pass out the communion. And church, when you get it, just go ahead and hold it, and we'll take it together. But as we close, let's pray. O maker and upholder of all things, day and night are thine. They are also mine from thee. The night to rid me of the cares of the day, to refresh my weary body, to renew my natural strength. The day to summon me to new activities, to give me opportunity to glorify thee, to serve my generation, to acquire knowledge, holiness, eternal life. But one day above all days is made especially for thy honor and my improvement. The Sabbath reminds me of thy rest from creation, of the resurrection of my Savior, of his entering into repose. Your house, God, is mine, but I am unworthy to meet thee there, and I am unfit for spiritual service. When I enter it, I come before thee as a sinner, condemned by conscience and thy word. For I am still in the body and in the wilderness, ignorant, weak, in danger, in need of thine aid. But encouraged by thy all-sufficient grace, let me go to thy house with a lively hope of meeting thee, knowing that there that will come and give me peace. My soul is drawn out to thee in longing desires for presence in the sanctuary, at the table where all are entertained on a feast of good things. Let me before the broken elements, emblems of thy dying love, cry to thee with a broken heart for grace and forgiveness. I long for that blissful communion of thy people and thy eternal house in the perfect kingdom. These are they that follow the Lamb. May I be of their company. And, Father, as we take communion together, as we have seen your design for our lives as your disciples, may we be reminded, be encouraged, be strengthened, be freshened as we remind ourselves of who Christ is and what he has done for us. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.